Freeway Movie Gasm. Welcome to the Three Way Movie Gasm podcast. This is Sasha Stone from AwardsDaily.com. I'm here with uh, Ryan Adams, also from AwardsDaily.com. Hi there, everyone. And Craig Kennedy from livinginsinema.com. Hello. Today we're going to talk about um, the the social network. We're going to talk about how um, how it's doing at the box office and what we thought about the movie in general. We're going to talk about True Grit and the Coen Brothers' oeuvre, and then uh, a little bit of a longer piece on Let Me In. All right. If you if you if you live on another planet or you somehow haven't heard about the social network, uh, just here's a quick plot synopsis. It's a uh, directed by uh, David Fincher, written by Aaron Sorkin, and starring Jesse Eisenberg, Andrew Garfield, and Justin Timberlake. And it is based on the book Accidental Billionaires, which t- definitely does not tell Mark Zuckerberg, who founded Facebook side of the story it, it it takes um eduardo saverin side and and the two of them were were students at harvard and they founded facebook together and uh saverin was supposed to be the um chief financial officer but he dragged his feet and mark he he wasn't moving fast enough for mark zuckerberg so zuckerberg delib- um, i'm not going to give it away from here but basically right. needless to enough, say yeah. Aaron Sorkin said he did his own research independently and tried mm. to make it a more balanced portrayal of Facebook uh, rather mm-hmm. than just Saverin's story. That's um, true. But basically it's about the foundings of Facebook. It's about the dirty lucre that everybody's fighting for, the millions and billions of dollars that Facebook ultimately made, and how this uh, guy Mark Zuckerberg became the youngest billionaire in the world. Um, but in in so doing, it doesn't just tell the story of Facebook it's kind of a kind of a beautiful rendering of the American dream and uh, sort of sort of skewers our own desire to win at all costs. And uh, and, the, and that's what makes it a great movie, in my opinion. It doesn't it doesn't take the perspective of Zuckerberg or the, the book doesn't. But like uh, uh, Sorkin definitely balanced the scales. I mean, I went into the movie with a series of preconceived notions about him, about Zuckerberg. Not liking him, thinking he was an overprivileged little nerd who has a billion dollars, and he just wasn't very interesting to me. But um, I thought Sorkin did something really smart by by playing this kind of antisocial, nerdy character in part against the Winklevoss brothers, who are a couple of characters in the in the story from whom Zuckerberg may or may not have gotten his idea of her Facebook. But they're the they're literally the overprivileged frat boy jerk characters. So even though Zuckerberg's a little off putting, you actually root for the guy against these two guys. The 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 Winklevosses are portrayed humorously, but they're not but but they're almost they're almost comic villains in a certain way. Um and I think that was that was a brilliant move on on Sorkin's uh part. I was shocked at both movies that we went to yesterday. Had hardly anybody in either theater for Let Me In and for the Social Network. There were less than thirty people in a huge theater, and they were uh, smart-looking people, 
<laughs> it was a better crowd than usual, <laughs> <laughs> but it just not very much, not very many people, you know. Supposedly, um, the social network is being tagged as playing well on the coasts and in Chicago. It's one of those smarty pants intellectual movies that Hollywood who, doesn't think the flyover states can handle. Who said um, that? Um, you know, I read like four or five little analyses this morning, and I don't remember which one it was. It might have been The Hollywood Reporter, but it could have been The Rap. Uh-huh. What was interesting to me was oh, – I'm, I'm jumping ahead of Ryan's original point. Um, well, let me rephrase it so that it sounds like I'm not trampling over Ryan's point. Um, no, I don't think I, I, didn't, I didn't know I had a point. Well, you were talking about the the, the sparse uh, oh, attendance right. in the theater, mm-hmm. and over I don't I don't know what it's like regionally, but overall the numbers to me seem pretty good for a, a extremely talky uh, courtroom drama uh, uh, aimed. Well, it made like eight million on Friday, and it's pegged anywhere between twenty-two and twenty-eight by the time Sunday finishes up. That that to me is excellent, especially for a movie that only costs forty million dollars. This is not an action movie. The town the town only opened at twenty-seven million, right, or twenty-six million. And this is far from being the kind of movie that would attract the same kind of crowd as the town attracted. I would think. I read the movie described as a movie with young people with adult dial a younger movie with adult dialogue. And that's kind of a right. tough sell, you know. That's because the younger people don't have the adult dialogue kept skills yet, <laughs> and so I'm not surprised that the numbers the number look good looks good to me. Right, but we also we need to define what is really good for this movie. Like I said, it it's a it's a talky courtroom drama, very adult in terms of dialogue, and it doesn't have any big movie stars in it. I mean, it, this is not a Two hundred million dollar movie, but who cares? You know that doesn't just just because the certain experts may have pegged it in the thirty million dollar range for opening weekend doesn't mean anything. It just means that they were wrong. It, it's no right. reflection on the movie whatsoever. And Definitely I think the fact not. that if it pulls, you know, twenty two to twenty five in the opening weekend, to me, that's fantastic. Yeah, I agree, and I think that um, it's you know the the better it does, the more it's going to drive people to the theater. But like I said, I think there are going to be a lot of people who are going to try to use this as a way to show that the movie isn't doing as well. I can just see the stories now, you know, overhype on the web, you know, causes box office failure. <laughs> so Well, already the, the rap article, especially, um, I think it was Daniel Frankel who wrote it, already sort of was told from the perspective that it's that it that the opening was soft, which mm. which is just crazy because it's soft only in reference to what certain unknown people had decided that it was going to be. Right, right. I'm sure the studio, the studio's got to be thrilled. Maybe the the awards marketing people are maybe a little nervous, but the studio has to be thrilled with how it's doing. Yeah. And so, I'm wondering too how it's um how it's tracking compared to say Benjamin Button, which um hard to compare to that was a holiday that movie. That was a that was a Christmas day movie. I don't know if we can really compare them and and you shouldn't even I think the numbers are, to are similar though. Hmm. Go ahead. Oh. Well, that's definitely soft then for Benjamin Button because it starred Brad Pitt, you know, and he opens movies and this has no stars in it. So the combination of it being a holiday movie and starring Brad Pitt and it making this much money is is a lot lower than Social Network with no stars. Um great reviews and making, you know, what the studio expected it to make. Right, and let's not forget too. Benjamin Button cost five times more than the Social Network cost to produce the budget, and it didn't have as good a reviews. 
Right. We might have to cut this part out entirely if we do the research and find out that I'm talking out of my ass. I know. The, Same here. The whole I, reason I, <laughs> I never even looked. What's, what's that? But it, <laughs> it well, would be good it, to if, ha- it's, if it's true, the whole reason I brought it up was not as a knock against Benjamin Button, but to point out that Benjamin Button made what it made, and it still was nominated for a shit pot of Oscars. Yeah. It didn't win any of them, but it was still nominated. That's true. So That's- we're getting a little carried away with the box office analysis analysis here in, in, in September. I'm surprised that it only cost $40 million. He sure got a bang for his buck with that because it really looks a lot more expensive than that. So a lot of people took deferred salaries, deferred uh, you know, back-end deals and things like that. I guess oh, they're they waiting did. to – so that, that helps. Hmm. Plus the cast we can, are not $20 million actors. Right. Yeah. Right. Not now anyway. Maybe someday. I'm looking at Benjamin Button now. Just to, just for reference, it, it opened the opening weekend was 26 million, in, in 3,000 theaters. It has some competition okay. on Christmas Day uh, that that the Social Network doesn't have, but still tw- uh, 26 million. How many theaters million, that, um, for Social Network? Social Network opened in 2,771 theaters. So I guess what we're saying is that Social Network is doing really well at the box office. That it's in no way a, a failure. I'm just I'm I'm a, it makes me angry that people are trying to say already that it's a failure because a $25 million opening on a four, $40 million movie is a great opening. Right in October. Yeah. So It's not only a failure as a standalone thing, it's not a failure in terms of its awards prospects. This is, doesn't damage its chances in any way. Yeah. Because it's tracking right along with what Benjamin Button did by the same director over a holiday with a bigger movie star. It ended up with a pile of Oscar nominations. Right, so 13 Oscar nominations. Monday and, morning, if anybody predicts that somehow the social network's awards chances are damaged, they're, they're spinning something from somebody. It's ridiculous. Right. So it just can't be perceived as a failure. Once it's perceived as a failure, like that's what I'm a little bit nervous about this opening weekend. Like If they can find a way to somehow paint it as a failure... Um, then it will lose, it will deflate ever so slightly, you know, start losing. Gosh, I just want to go back to the numbers and the, the difference between 25 or 26 million and 30 million is 4 million bucks. I know that that percentage wise, that's uh, overall percentage. That's a, that's a, that's a chunk, but $4 million over in the whole scheme of things doesn't seem like a, enough reason for people to have to brand it as a failure. So both you guys saw Let Me In last night, right? The uh, Matt Reeves remake of the Swedish vampire film uh, Let the Right One In. Uh, I wish I had seen it. What do you think? Well, luckily, Let Me In is a great movie. Um, I Everyone who's been skeptical about it for the past four, ever since it was announced and been angry about it, in fact, that it was being made or even considered to be remade, I think uh, are really losing out if they'd skip this movie because it's excellent, I thought. I knew from the very first shot that this was going to be something special. The cinematography is is very nice, and I was thinking, who who shot this? I can't wait to get home and 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 find out. And and it was it's a Greg Fraser who last year um, shot Bright Star. Hmm. Oh wow! I didn't know that he'd done that. Yeah. I mean, I didn't know that he'd done Let Me In. Right. And uh, you saw it too, Craig, right? Yeah, I'm a, a little less crazy about it than you were. I agree that that Matt Reeves did a, a great job of not totally ruining the original movie, but I'm not sure that he brought enough new to it to justify having done it. I'm not sure if it's necessarily... Well, you obviously disagree because you loved the original too, correct? 
I did like the original. I think that I think that they're a great pair. I, I would have trouble if someone said I could only choose one and they were going to destroy all the prints of the other one. I would have a lot of trouble deciding which one to save because I think they're they're of equal. I think they're of equal value. I think it was very good. The couple of problems that I had with it, um, one was that um, was um, Chloe Moretz, and it was, has nothing to do with the actress. I think she's terrific, mm-hmm. but there was something about the unknown actress, unknown to me, who was in the Swedish original, that added sort of a, a, a an alien quality to that character. Whereas here, it was it was somebody that I recognized, and it sort of it sort of diminished that character a little bit for me. The thing I like more about Chloe Moretz and uh, Cody Smith-McPhee as well is they were both more androgynous than the characters in the original. And I like that. That's true. That there was, um, especially when they're dressed up for cold weather with their hoodies on and, and, they're, and, not, and nothing showing but just their faces, their hair covered up and everything. They could both, either one, from, they could be a girl or boy. And that, that fits in with the story pretty well, I think. Also, I think the Cody, the Cody Smith McPhee character, um, as creepy as, as Oscar was in the original, there was something more creepy to me about Owen in this one. He really seemed like um, a potential serial killer in the making, you know what I mean? With his, with I his didn't knife. think about it in those terms, but you're right. Now that you mention it, that, that there was a quality. What I picked up from him, what I picked up from Owen, is that he was very much more aware of what was happening than Oscar was, and he was into it. Right. He didn't. It didn't bother him a bit, you know. Right. Um, he was, and I thought that that was pretty fascinating. Oscar was afraid. Oscar was fearful, and he. I mean, he he put on a good front of of dealing with it and 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 being brave. But uh, he was more fearful of what was happening than Owen was. Owen, once he even once he figured out what was happening, he's like, all right, I can I can I can go with this. Yeah, he was more on board the whole the whole mm-hmm. thing. Which fits in with how it ends. Mm-hmm. And the ending was better. See, although the the climactic pool scene, which everyone who's seen the original loves that scene as well as they should because it was just perfectly done. Every, mm-hmm. just the, everything about it, the camera angles and the pacing and everything was perfect. The actual ex- execution of the climax in the pool was not quite as good in the, in the remake, but the final coda the final ending that they tacked that they added on i think mm-hmm. elevated it to something else totally beyond what the original was it was better we can't, we can't talk about it but but it, uh, it, it it's worth it's worth f- seeing to find out trust me it's worth seeing just for the new ending well and you can tell me if this is a spoiler or not after i say it and if it is you can just cut it out completely but um the ending of both of them and more so in the in in the american version sort of ties into my idea about about Owen being sort of a, a serial killer in the making, because if you think about the implications of what the ending means, that's one possible. Um, yeah, I can't really talk about it without spoiling the whole thing. Well, the movie begins. Um, we can see that we're focusing on it from the point of view of a of a young kid. Um, how old is he? Would you say, Craig? Nine or ten, maybe. Yeah. Um, who's being bullied in school, and um, his parents are in the midst of a divorce and so he's got all that going on in his life and he uh, notices out of his window that a neighbor has moved in and they're pretty mysterious acting and he hears some their their apartment is right next door to his and so he can hear through the walls that there's strange things going on next door and the more he finds out about this girl who's his age who moves in next door to him the more intrigued he is and the more um, it becomes clear that something's not quite right about her 
And of course, we know anybody. I think it, the you, the basic thing that you have you know about the movie that she is a vampire. And that's that's the Chloe Moretz character, right? Is the vampire? Right. Yeah. And and do they become friends? They do become friends. Although she tells him from the very very beginning, the very first thing that she tells him, "I can't be your friend." Because she's but a vampire. Because she's afraid that she she know in a way she knows that she doesn't want to involve him. Hmm. But but she soon finds out that he he can handle it and that he um, he wants to be involved. So what do you guys think it is about um, vampire culture that's so cinematic and so fascinating to audiences and filmmakers? Because it seems like we're just in the midst of you know a complete vampire you know drenching every like there's true blood. There's Has it ever ended though? Really, it's from the t from the 1920s all all the. Um, until now, there's never has there ever been a time when there wasn't a fascination with it. There's, there's a, there is definitely it's a hot spot right now with True Blood and Twilight. But I mean, I'm telling you, this movie compared to Twilight and and uh, all three seasons of True Blood and and three movies of Twilight cannot compare to the entertainment and value and and thoughtfulness going on in this movie. And it, would you opinion. say that about just Let Me In or both Let the Right? I'm talking in? about Let Me In, yeah. And, well, yeah, both of them together. I think they're a, they're a great pair. I think they're a great um, double feature to see together. I don't, I recommend both of them. Well, that's they interesting. Both I mean, to and see yet. Nobody went to see it opening weekend. I wonder. Nobody I, went to see I, it. it was I like agree that it's a terrific little film, but it did terribly at the box office. And I wonder if part of that is um, vampire fatigue. Everybody is bored of Twilight. Not, I mean, obviously people aren't bored of Twilight. People are still incredibly obsessed about it. But there's this other subset of people who aren't necessarily inside there, of the vampire bubble, and they're sick of hearing about the whole thing. Can I say if they're fatigued, they're they're if they're tired of it, they're tired of Twilight and True Blood because they're tiresome series, both of them. I think True Blood and right. Twilight are both tiresome, so no wonder people are fatigued. But that's the, that'll be that's a real shame if that's true because then they they've been exhausted by the by the shit and they're going to miss out on the great stuff. It, it's another case of a of a studio that doesn't quite know how to market what they have because it's a movie that doesn't naturally fit into a genre. I mean, obviously it has the horror elements to it, but it's mm -hmm. also an odd little coming of age story about a couple of I outcasts. wish that they had sold it like that. I told Sasha by uh, the night I saw it, I said, this is a great romance. It's a, it's one, it's the best to me. It's the best little teen romance of the, of all of, of 2010 of, of all year long. It just occurred to me that a movie like True Grit that's about outlaws in a way overlapped genre. Outlaws overlap into the gangster genre. Outlaws were the precedent for for gangsters. They were just the gangsters of the Wild West. It'll be interesting to see if they if they do do a straight ahead Western or if they do add their own little elements to it. And, and maybe there will be some gangster type elements to it. And I, I, I tend to think of them as being a genre unto themselves. There's, there's the Cohen genre and everything. And then, and then there's, you know, everything else. Another thing about the Coens that's unique uh, among a lot of directors is that they write most of almost except for true grit and no country for old men, they've written all of their own scripts. That's not that common. The right. writer director so I wonder why they've they've changed and they've started in they've started adapting screenplays like first with No Country for Old Men, which is kind of understandable since it's mm -hmm. Cormac McCarthy. Um, but it's I don't, maybe because maybe they've done another one because the the first time that they tried it, it turned out so well. <laughs> you know, I mean, since they they all of all the great movies they made, it took an adaptation for them to finally win six Oscars. So hey, let's try that again. 
I think I remember reading somewhere that they said that they wa- always wanted to do a Western. I can't remember yeah. where I read it. I might have to like find it yeah. on, on search, mm-hmm. but I do re- seem to recall them saying that's the one genre they've always wanted to, to attempt to, to do. You know. I also remember hearing a couple of years ago that they were thinking of remaking a movie called Gambit. I think it had Shirley MacLaine and Michael Caine in it. It's sort of a, one of those old 1960s heist movies, like Top Cappy or or How to Steal Steal a Million Dollars or what you know those kind of movies. This was called Gambit, and I'm, I'm pretty confident that they were going to do a remake of Gambit. I hope they do because I think they'd be that would be terrific. But they won't do another one, another Western, will they? After this? No, Gambit, Gambit was like a, a European heist movie. Oh, okay, yeah, God, that'd be yeah. great. I'd love to see yeah. them do that. Um, I think rather than sticking to one kind of genre, what makes them interesting is the way that they mix and match. I mean, if you look at Raising Arizona, on one hand, it's sort of this screwball comedy, but if you look at the bones of the story, it's very much film noir. And the same is true of The Big Lebowski. I mean, it's a comedy. It's this sunny, stoned Southern California vibe, but the plot is taken straight out of Raymond Chandler. Hmm. That's interesting. I never thought of them really combining genres, although it makes sense. They really do um, in an interesting way. So... uh, I, I think that when you write your own material, that you know where you're going with it before it's even on the page. Instead of getting a script being that that's being shopped around, and they say who would be a great director for this, and and you find a script that's been that other people have already looked at, and then you figure out what can I do with this to make it my own. They start a few, many steps before that, before in, even the first word is on the page. They know where they're going with the direction before they even write it. Mm. Wow. And even if even in the projects where they're adapting somebody else's material, they're still the ones doing the adaptation. And I think the fact that they are the writers, and in mm-hmm. a lot of ways, I think of them as writers before I think of them as directors or filmmakers. I think their their number one skill is is words on a page, and because they're the ones doing it, that it allows them to have a unique, identifiable voice, and that is what is appealing to the people who. Who like them it obviously doesn't work for everybody it's not music to everybody's ears but if you're in tune to their strange little vibe there's nothing better the cohen brothers true grit opens on christmas day and you can read more from craig kennedy at livinginsinema.com and as always sasha and ryan are at awardsdaily.com thanks for listening and we will see you next week remember you can send email to awardsdaily at gmail.com We wanted to find love We wanted success